You're listening to the Propane Fitness Podcast, your ultimate resource for fat loss and muscle gain with none of the gimmicks. With your hosts, Yusuf and Johnny. Simple rules, dramatic results. Hello, my friends. Today, you are in for an absolute treat. I am fangirling hard because I'm with Dr. Daniel Ingram. This man started one day on level one of meditation. He went all the way up to extreme hard mode, completed the final boss at the end, and now he has completed meditation. He's gone through the final level. Hello, Daniel. Thank you for coming on. Um, So the the reason I say that is that uh, Daniel is what is described as an arhant, which is someone who essentially has completed meditation and uh, doesn't make any kind of song and dance about it either. He's written a really practical down-to-earth guide on meditation called Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, an unusually hardcore um, Dharma book, I think was the title. Oh, and also he happens to be an emergency medicine physician and has completed the final boss while going through his medical training. So very excited to have this guy on board. Hey, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I should mention in terms of like finish the final thing or finished meditation, got to be really careful with stuff like that because I, I would say I've finished up training in one very specific type of insight meditation. And so there's still other concentration things to learn and deepen, still other practices to work on, loving kindness, morality, um, other concentration exercises. So it's not like there aren't other things that can't go deeper because there really are. So I should just qualify that there, there's always something to learn. This path goes on and on and uh, just be a little bit, <laughs> a little subtle attempt at humility. Bit careful with, with the hyping. So actually, yeah. this is one of the topics that you discuss in your book, which is that you, you are aware of your remit and your limits and your status in progression and that you don't make any kind of um, crazy claims about magical powers and things, which I think a lot of people who are in who reach the kind of guru status can um, fall into, and um, it opens up the potential for financial gain, sexual abuse, all kinds of uh, tomfoolery. So it's very good to see that you are you you know you've maintained the straight and narrow, and you're pretty grounded with that. Well, sort of. Okay, so I don't mean to <laughs> qualify it again or, or be uh, argumentative, but uh, so. Along the way, I have had some interesting sort of powers-y-like experiences. That's different from saying I have psychic powers that I can just access all the time. But if you get into concentration and start uh, doing things deeply enough, you can chances, chance into some experiences that are pretty unusual that might be described by some people as psychic powers or CDs or whatever you want to call them. But they tend to be very momentary, very quick, relatively unpredictable, um, not the kind of thing I can just tap into you know, with a snap of my fingers or anything like that, usually require very, very high degrees of concentration, uh, which I can get to on retreat, usually, you know, a week or two in, um, if I'm really practicing well, and then they're totally hit or miss. So, so not- I, I have had some some uh, some experiences in these things, but to say I have psychic powers, like I could just, you know, do something, nothing like that. But meditation can produce some pretty unusual experiences if you get the dose really high. So if that helps, yeah. So, so not bit. cinematic X Men style thing. No, more, okay. nothing yeah. like that. So, now, if you're wondering why we've started this podcast on psychic powers, extreme meditation, that kind of thing, it's because if you're listening to this podcast, you are somebody who trains consistently. You are looking to grow mentally, physically, and spiritually. And we found consistently with our clients 
people who start on the journey of wanting abs, essentially wanting big arms and abs and looking better, start to unfold into this experience of multidimensional growth and meditation becomes a major part of that. And what I'm so fascinated by and why I'm fangirling is because as a medical student myself, I give myself the excuses and cop-outs that I can't dedicate that much time to meditating and so on. Whereas Dr. Ingram has been there and done that alongside the other commitments. And so what we want to look at really is the ability to um, take this high, high achieving potential and for something which has required a massive amount of total volume, total time on the cushion and how you've managed to fit it into a life that is ostensibly normal and you've not gone off to live. Um, I, yeah, I know you spent extended time on retreat and so on, but you, you are not, um, you know, you, you're socially functional. You're able to hold down a job, all of these other things as well. Well, sort of, again, <laughs> I want to add some humbling qualifiers here. So it is true that my meditation practice did disrupt some stuff. In fact, when I was in India in the throes of some difficult meditation stages, I canceled a whole bunch of medical school interviews and um, then later restarted the whole process of getting back into medical school. I um, did have some, I went back to medical school at age 30, which I know is sort of different from how people might usually do things in some other countries where they kind of go straight through college as, is medical school that, or, you know, sort of combined. And so I'm so, a uh, mature student as well. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, but um, so there, there was some disruption. It wasn't always perfectly clean. It took me a while to figure out how to do this in an integrated way. It wasn't always easy. I made plenty of mistakes. I ran off the rails at points. Uh, um, so it, it, so yes, it can be done. B to do it with no disruption of your life, no impairment of social function, no impairment of other activities, no impairment of family life, no impairment of career it's that becomes more challenging does that make sense there this are ways at the high to, level you're saying yeah at the high level at the high level the, the kind of stuff i like to do so i did end up burning a tremendous amount of vacation time on retreats time i could have spent with my family or you know having fun or doing something not that meditation can be fun sometimes it really can be uh, but a lot of times it's hard work and um so and i had to do things like to to go on a retreat between medical school and residency, I took a bunch of night classes in addition to my already, you know, full medical school load that allowed me to graduate a semester early. And then I used that time to go on retreat time. And so I did have to kind of pack stuff in in, in ways that were like, to, I don't want to seem like, oh, I just did it all and there was no problems because that's not really what happened. Well, yeah, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of the same in the sense that, uh, I've been so myself and my business partner Johnny have been running propane for about 10 years now and as the time commitment has started to step up alongside medical school I've had to I don't want to say cut corners but I'm known among my classmates as the grumpy bastard that's got a really low tolerance for um for things that are not directly examinable and I'll just you know because I have to be so ruthless with my time and it's meant that I've had to yeah. make some quite alternative arrangements at times yeah. So before we go on, and uh, you know, you, you did talk about, and I do want to, I do want to come back to some of the um, the, the downsides and the, the very serious side effects of meditation at the high level, and what can how it can affect your social functioning. And, and you talk about some of the strategies for that in your book. But before we go on, can we just talk a little bit about your background and also your current phenomenological experience? Sure. 
Oh, you, I thought you might have specific <laughs> questions. It was such no, a so can, background and phen- yeah. phenomenological experience. That's a, that's a huge uh, topic. So in terms of background, you mean like where did I come from? Where was I born? What were my what, tra- meditation traditions did I come in? Um, narrow it down a little bit for me. Okay, so that'll help I, me I focus. suppose your, your, first, your first exposure to meditation, which you, I, I heard you say it was through concentration states of visualizing, um, and you kind of stumbled upon the deeper concentration states, and then what's taken you through the 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 rest of the path, and also into becoming a doctor? Wow! Again, huge question. So, actually, my first experience with meditation and deep meditation states was when I was about three and a half years old, and I know that because. And this is this sounds like oh, I'm saying I'm special. No, I have. A, if you start asking people, a reasonable number of people who are into this stuff will actually report. Some interesting experiences in childhood, so I'm not trying to say I'm special or anything, but I was about three and a half years old, and I could do this weird thing where I would lay down on my parents' white-down comforter down the downstairs bedroom of that um, part of the house we rented in Massachusetts um, when I was young, and I would just breathe and pay attention to my breathing, and I wasn't taught this by anybody. I have no idea how I figured this out, and things would just get more still and blissful and peaceful and calm and eventually neutral, and how I remember this, I have no idea. But I've got a lot of memories that go way back. I can describe a lot of other things about that house. And, and um, we moved around a lot when I was a kid, so I can date a lot of my memories to by the houses we lived in. And I was able to get into these very pleasant states that I wouldn't actually get into again until I was about 26 um, and on retreat. So, or 25, somewhere in there. And I have no idea how I learned to get into them. I have no idea why I stopped getting into them. Actually, it would have been really useful later on in my childhood. So I don't know why I let that skill go, but I just it sort of didn't um, uh, happen again for a long time. And so then I actually got exposure to meditation when I was a kid in second through fourth grade. I went to this weird hippie Quaker school, and we sat in silence for 10 minutes every morning. And then actually in fourth grade, there was this strange class taught by this strange hippie that involves synthesizers and weird exercises and all kinds of odd things. But one of the things that involved is visualization practices where we'd like imagine we were really small and walking around our body and feeling tensions and relaxing them and doing all kinds of stuff like that. So I learned a little bit of meditation technique stuff then. And then I actually just sort of homebrewed my own thing where I chanced into a stage we would call the arising and passing away where I was trying to have flying dreams is about age 14 or 15, somewhere in there. And I was just visualizing billiard balls in space, like these 50-foot billiard balls and practicing flying, imagining myself flying between them because I've been having flying dreams since I was about five or six and they're really fun and I really enjoyed them. And I thought, wow, if I practice this before I go to sleep, maybe I'll have more of them. And it turns out just attempting to visualize that was enough to catapult me into some pretty interesting meditation territory. And then um, I later ran into some people who had gone on retreats Specifically, uh, um, I had a friend named Kenneth Folk who then went on some retreats, and he was influenced by a guy named Bill, a guy named Bill Hamilton. And then, um, inspired by them, I started going on retreats, and then that was that. That's interesting. And as you mentioned, I think sometimes, and it could be selection bias, but we do see that this trend of people who have achieved very high states in meditation often seem to report having had some kind of experience in childhood that they maybe couldn't explain and that they returned to later. Mm-hmm. Do you think that is instrumental in it, or do you think it's just a phenomenon that 
um, we see in retrospect? Um, it is hard to tell how much was retros- retrospective because it wasn't until I was like 25 or 26 and I started getting back into those states that I was like, oh my God, those are this th- that was this thing I did when right, I was so a kid. You, you remembered it. Like, it was like, whoa, okay, that's, that's cool. Um, and so, but I would, I mean, there, there probably is some kind of genetic something. I mean, like the nurture nature debate of how much of this is intrinsic and how much of this is good training or conditioning or good techniques or whatever. I think meditative talent probably is some mix of both. There are some people who have some talent or just some, some more natural abilities. Not that anybody can learn the stuff people can, but, um, as you know, some people are like clearly better at things than others. Like some people have perfect pitch. I don't, it'd be great to have you know, some some people writing symphonies at age four, Mozart or whatever. I I you know just sort of remained the sort of low intermediate level guitar player for most of my life, despite a lot of practice. You know, so it's just you know some people do seem to have some talent, but they're clearly if you if you train, it gets a whole lot better. So, right. That was going to be one of my questions for you, really, which is I suppose that the childhood experience, as you said, it could maybe you could argue that it's greasing the neural groove in a sense, that that then, when you re-enter that experience, you've already got those functions already slightly mapped out? Or oh, yeah. is it just, because I, I know that the, at least the traditional Buddhist approach is that through multiple lives, some people are ready and they're the chosen few that in this lifetime can become <laughs> enlightened, whereas the more pragmatic, more the pragmatist might just say, you know what, it's a matter of total volume. And it sounds like you're saying there's maybe a combination of genetics and um, work that are required. But the work is really the important thing. I think while there is the rare person who has spontaneous awakening experiences, you know, along the way, the vast majority of us need to train. And so I trained a lot. I I practiced a lot. I went a lot of retreats, a lot of daily practice, a lot of sitting, a lot of daily mindfulness, a lot of study, a lot of texts, a lot of stuff. And without that, I wouldn't have anything like what I have today. I mean, it's like athletes, you know, there are some people who are naturally just stronger than other people, but everybody benefits from weight training and, and cardio and all that stuff. So, yeah. That and if you just sense. sit around like a, like a couch potato, no matter how much natural musculature you're given, you know, it's not going to do what it would do if you trained. So, And it's, it's a very poor argument to say, oh, well, I've got shit genetics, so I'm not going to bother training at all. It's like, right. well, you know, just because you've been dealt that hand doesn't mean that you can't improve and doesn't mean that uh, there's nothing you can do about the... And, and you also wouldn't necessarily know. So, like, one of the stories that people really seem to like when I tell it is, is, is a story about my first retreat. So I went from a little bit of meditation as a kid straight into a nine-day retreat at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. And it was 45 minutes sitting, 45 minutes walking almost all day long with some breaks for uh, talk and some food and stuff. Uh, but otherwise, a lot, a lot of, you know, many hours of daily practice. And what was interesting is during the walking meditation, I could barely feel my feet. It was the weirdest thing. They were like, pay attention to the sensations of your feet. And I could barely do this. Like, I would have thought it was so easy until I actually did the experiment and proved that I couldn't concentrate on two steps in a row, much less 10 or anything. Like, and then I'd be off wandering in my mind and like my feet with these sort of vague sort of things somewhere, but like trying to keep my mind on them was nearly impossible. And about, you know, four or five days in or something like that, I started walking on the stone walls, the rough, you know, New England, uh, no, non-finished top stone walls on the outside of the comp, you know, uh, the, um, meditation center. 
so that I could even feel the sensations of my feet. I'm not recommending pain or anything for anybody, but like it took that for me to actually follow what I would have thought was the most simple meditation instruction. And even after many, many hours of practice, it took something that strong of a sensation before I could even begin to really focus on it. And so even if I had some, you know, a little bit of genetic, whatever, some childhood experiences, like when I started off actually doing meditation training, my mind was a floppy, distracted, totally all over the place mess. And, um, and training really helped change that. I think like most people when they start and it's, you know, you see someone sat looking blissful and you think, oh, I'll give that a go. And then, like <laughs> you sat down 15 minutes and you realize that you focused on the first breath when you sat down and then the remaining mm-hmm. 14 minutes, 59 seconds, you've been thinking about food and you're like, yeah. damn it. Like <laughs> that was completely pointless. Yes. So all of this work that you've done so far, Daniel, what, how has that changed your day-to-day lived experience now? Wow. Okay. So that's, um, it's, it's very, very different. Um, it's actually hard to remember all of the ways in which it's different because after a while they've sort of become normal. But uh, the, and we should mention these, these are not typical effects of, of meditation training. People can get into this, you know, it, some of this, but to get the whole package I'm going to describe took me a lot of years and a lot of work and is not that typical, but it, it's doable. So, um, the, so what's interesting right now is thoughts are known as thoughts. That's one of the most interesting things. So if I start with something really simple, and that actually is, is a result that applies to really early meditation training stages as well in terms of something to look for. So that's a practical um, implication of describing what my experience is like now. So we can be sort of lost in our thoughts or disappear into our thoughts, or we can have thoughts sort of be part of the room, part of just what's going on in this space. When thoughts are just these little kind of vague, really subtle things going on in a wide open space, they don't cause a whole lot of trouble. But if we get lost in them or contracted into them or forget um, our surroundings and sort of disappear into them, sometimes that's useful if we're doing really high-level cognitive things where we need to tune out sounds or we need to do really abstract thinking or we need to remember our, our calendar or whatever it is. You know, we kind of need to, um, Are you still but, able to do that on command? You mean to to become immersed again in thoughts if needed? Yeah, but the default is actually really different from that. And even when I become immersed in thoughts, they're still part of a space. It's just a really different space. So it's a space that I'm kind of tuned out from this space and into that space. But most of the time, I just call, I mean, or I want to say, thoughts are just happening in this space, like little colors or textures or whatever, somewhere generally in the head area, but they can occur all over the place. And we can imagine, you know, you can imagine a leprechaun sitting on your couch or whatever at a distance from you. That's a thought happening over there, you know. So, or, you know, so, um, and if you, one of the first things you really need to learn in, in meditation training is to be able to notice thoughts as thoughts. Because if you can notice thoughts as thoughts, you, you've done a huge and important step towards getting some, it's not easy, right? So this took a lot of practice. But if you practice noticing thoughts as thoughts as you go, okay, this is a thought, this is another thought, and then noticing feelings as feelings. So like we can get kind of lost in our feelings, caught in our feelings, but when you notice thoughts are occurring as part of feelings and then there are bodily sensations down here, like in our chest or our stomach or our throat or our head or whatever, and then you start to notice, wait, these are just things occurring in this room or in this car or in this open space or wherever you happen to be, then that 
really helps. So the more you can kind of make that your level of baseline, just you know, experience, just by training, um, just as sort of a baseline level of skill, then the more um, you will be able to see emotions as emotions, which is really different from the experience of being caught in them. So, uh, so one of the things that resulted from a lot of training to do that exact thing is I got better at doing that exact thing, and now thoughts are seen as thoughts. So that's really important. And they're seen as experiences, which is also really interesting. So we don't tend to think of thoughts as experiences. We tend to think of thoughts as something other than experience. But if you actually look at thoughts, they actually have sonic qualities to them or auditory qualities. We can hear little sounds. We can hear the voice in our head telling us things. We, um, they have visual qualities, right? So we can imagine where our foot is with our eyes closed. And there's a mix of the sensations of our foot and also a picture of our foot or our dog. We're not you know, seeing our dog right now. We can imagine, oh, this is what my dog looks like. Or, you know, this is where the post office is or whatever it is. So there are visual components. There are spatial components. Um, there are tactile components. So we can actually imagine moving our hand around in space, even if our hand isn't moving. And we can sort of feel the subtle thing that's actually the thought of moving our hand around. And these are subtle things. And what's interesting is the amount of trouble that they cause right? yeah. for these incredibly subtle things, right? As we've all noticed, right? If we didn't have a lot of troubling thoughts, our lives would be a whole lot better. And it's not that I don't have thoughts that might be weird or, you know, strange or like, oh, <laughs> look at that thought. But when they experience is just sort of like the subtle little textures and qualities and colors and um, sounds of, of kind of space or the room happening, that gives a whole lot of perspective on them that is really freeing. <laughs> so that's a, a really useful thing to learn to do in meditation. And again, it took a whole lot of practice. This was not easy. This is a lot of hours, just like learning anything. So if I wanted to learn to become a virtuoso guitar player, which I'm not, I would need to put in a whole lot more time doing scales and chords and arpeggios and metronome training and all that kind of stuff, ear training. And I haven't done that, which is why I'm just an okay guitar player. But had I done that, I could play you know, really fast scales and stuff with ease. And in the same way, if you spend a lot of time noticing emotions as emotions, just as bodily sensations, not trying to necessarily suppress them or... Um, you know, uh, amplify them or just, but, oh, there's sensations of tension or fear or sadness or anger or desire or hunger or whatever. And these are the thoughts that are associated with that. If you can learn to do that and make that more of your baseline, that really helps. So that's, that's a big um, reason to do this stuff is if you can learn to do that, that will make a big difference. And so I trained and I learned to do that. Um, the other thing is it's a lot easier if you start to notice that things happen on their own. Now, this is sort of a weird thing. Like we usually think of, we have to make effort. We have to do stuff. We have to force ourselves to make all these things happen. Until you sit down on the cushion and then you realize very rapidly, I have almost no control of my thoughts, right? This is one of the first things you realize. If you try to meditate for five minutes, you're like, wow, I, how could my thoughts be me, right? I can't, I can't control these pesky things, except a little bit. You've got a little control, it seems, right? Tiny but bit. even though... Yeah, a tiny bit. A little bit of control of what your attention does. A little bit of control of whether or not you stay sitting on that cushion rather than go up and get a sandwich or whatever. You've got a little bit of control. But a lot of the stuff is just happening, right? We can take whole showers and not remember if we washed our feet or whatever. We can drive to work and not remember anything about the drive, you know, or take the, the bus or whatever, you know, or the subway or whatever, you, you're, however you're getting there. And so... What's interesting is the amount of our lives that run automatically is very large. It turns out letting everything run automatically actually is a lot better. So you start to realize that all of the, even the sense of effort or control, those things just arise naturally on their own. So if you train well enough and start to notice, even the sense of effort arises naturally. Even the sense of, of 
I am, or that sort of body sense arises naturally. Even, uh, um, you know, everything we do arises on its own. And so if you train well, you can start to notice, oh, wait, these things are just happening, just natural occurrences. And that is actually way easier and way more freeing than the other way. Now, the curious thing is, is that we think, oh, I have to keep a tight rein on myself or else I would do this and I would do that. And I just can't let go of control and let this thing do whatever it does, right? Which is sort of an interesting thing to say, right? Because that, then are you the thing in control and what would be the thing that would be doing the things that, It you suddenly know, you... fragments you into two separate, yeah. And right. So, as you said as well, it, it's like um, we have this, innate automatic micromanager that tries to mm-hmm. restrict and control and resist everything that we do rather than allowing the inner wisdom to unfold on its own because we're afraid that it will make us like pull up, pull down our pants in public or do something really stupid. Yeah. So even those things that seem like control actually arise naturally. All the sort of, you know, restraining factors or the wisdom factors that would try to keep you on the straight and narrow or doing the right thing, those actually arise naturally on their own too. And so if you train well enough, you can start to learn to perceive, oh, wait, the intentions for those things to arose, and then those, those restraining or you know, mitigating or wisdom factors or morality factors or whatever, those things arose on their own too, and you can start to notice that. And then eventually you sort of let go and let it all happen on its own, including the, the things that seem to be a fragment in consciousness, the id and superego and you know, ego or whatever. Those are actually just natural processes of the way our brains are built, right? So we've got this cortex built over, you know, a more primitive, you know, limbic system from when we were rats or lizards or whatever we were. And so, you know, and, but those interactions are actually just natural things. And so there is a way to have all that just be happening naturally. Um, So that's another thing that can come from training. Another thing that can come from training is a real sense of immediacy. So if, if you practice being here now long enough and practice being in the moment long enough, eventually you realize, wait a second, there is nothing else but this moment. How could there have been anything else other than this moment? So, so that's one of the things that can come, become more a part of experience. And so you start to realize, wait, this is just the moment happening. And it's always right now, every single time. <laughs> it, it's, it seems surprising to people, but curiously enough, uh, a sense of time is created by thoughts of past and future. Well, if you get the first part, which is that thoughts are thoughts, and you really get good at seeing thoughts and thoughts and bodily sensations as bodily sensations, then you notice that time is just little thoughts of time and how you represent time occurring now. So, and that sense of immediacy is really nice. Um, there's something really wonderful about this moment. And it's not that this moment can involve pain and complexity and difficulty and illness and sadness and difficult emotions. It can. But actually being with them um, in some immediate natural way really helps. It takes away a sense of time pressure. It, it, um, it keeps us focused on what we're doing right now, which is usually pretty useful, right? Yep. Um, and uh, so in terms of speaking well, in terms of living well, in terms of you know, uh, monitoring our emotions or um, being able to add wisdom to our emotions, if we're present, that, that helps with all those processes in this really natural way. And so training to be present to be right here and to real recognize that it's always now, which is, seems cliche until you actually lock it in through hours and hours and hours of training. <laughs> and then you go, okay, wait, no, being right here is really good. This is better. This is better than the other way where I really seemed to not be here some substantial portion of the time, whatever that means, which is actually impossible to be, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, just in, in terms of being immersed in a thought that relates to something that is not, that is other than this moment. And mm-hmm. I think... Um, 
the so so really to summarize there's the the sense of not being as contracted in thoughts and there's an open up there's a spaciousness the lack of um contracted agency sense of the doer and the um immense the 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 nowness of what's going on at the moment and i've i've heard again this seems to overlap with there's a guy called gary weber who i'm a big fan of because he's um, <laughs> very interested in the uh the, the new science of this yeah i've seen you guys have had a few conversations so um he yeah he, he says something similar that because so much mental ram is freed up from mm-hmm. not thinking about past and future that you turn up in a meeting and suddenly you're the smartest guy in the room simply because you're the only guy in the room. You're the only person that's 100% there. And yeah. uh, this, again, it, it correlates with at least what we know so far about the neuroscience of people who have achieved or, or have accrued a huge amount of volume in meditative states, which is that we move out of the default mode network and more into the tasking network, which is also associated with this kind of phenomenology of disbanding self in space and self in time. And the way that you described it, I've heard is um, about the thoughts thing is that, correct me if I've butchered this, but you were like, you said there's a, there's a certain amount of data stream that is going on and is, is happening in our awareness. And before lots of meditation, Thoughts occupy 97% of that to the point where you can be so wrapped up in your thoughts that you don't even, um, you, you might, yeah, you operate, you have a shower or you drive somewhere, you're not even operating on, on that. That's just kind of autopilot. Whereas now you said they, occur, they occupy maybe two or 3% of your total data input. And so there's this sense of expansiveness and an openness that comes along with it. Is that fair to say? Yeah, they're just a relatively small part of this space. Right, and they're an important part. It's it not sounds that so important. crazy. Thoughts, are, thoughts are still cool, but like, well, just you're sitting in a room, so like you're aware of the room, you're aware of your feet and your body and your hair and your <laughs> the walls around you, and you know the sound echoing off the walls as you cough, and the you know the monitor or screen or whatever you're looking at, and so there's that space that you're constructing out of sounds and physical sensations and visuals, right? So your brain's putting all that together to come up with a sort of integrated package, right? And then there's thoughts as a part of that. So if you actually just sit there and notice, okay, I'm in the room and there's some thoughts happening in the room, like the thoughts are this really subtle thing, right? And it is amazing the trouble they can cause for being such teeny little subtle things, right? Because when you try to find them in meditation, you can barely find them and yet they're so powerful. It's this weird thing. Like, so the meaning of thoughts can be very powerful, but the sensation is really subtle. So if you start tuning into the sensations of thoughts, the auditory and visual and tactile and spatial and other components to them, you can. it really helps change your relationship to them in a way that's a whole lot more skillful, a whole lot better, a whole lot less contracted, yeah, and a whole lot more healthy. I think that's it, that thoughts are very slippery in that when you try and grip onto one, it's like grabbing those water snakes and it slips, slips away. But yep. at the same time, it seduces your awareness very slowly when you've, when you've let your guard off just for a moment. And then, as I say, 20 minutes down the line, you've just been ruminating about something and and you know during my uh, last retreat i certainly found that certain themes would come up and then you just and it, it waking up to that and being like oh bollocks how long was i out for um is really what was the retreat tell me about the retreat so it was actually thanks to you um that i went on this retreat and it was because in your book you talk about um, and I, I want to get to more of this on the total the total volume concept, which was that you said, if you have 365 hours of time to dedicate to meditation in a year, you're better off 
splitting that in half and front-loading the 170 or whatever into the first month rather than spreading it to an hour a day so you gain some kind of momentum and then you so you blast and cruise essentially mm-hmm. and so i was yes. like right i'm going on retreat that's sold me on it nice what do you think what happened How fantastic was it? um each day i mean i've, I've done a, a podcast on this but each day was very um very much as if you have like a theme of sadness and a theme of grief and a theme of lust and a theme you know and there's one day where you just like as my flatmate experienced the same thing he was like every sexual thought he's ever had going through his head and then the next day was like just anger at at everything and and it's crazy how these layers seem to come through i would like to actually in a very predictable order so right. the, the, the day of, you know, all your sexual stuff is the arising and passing away day. And then after that is fear, misery, disgust, desire for deliverance, you know. <laughs> so, like, there are these predictable stages to meditation. And what's interesting is if you, you know, start hanging out a lot of retreats or, you know, hearing a lot of people describe their practice or if you get to teach some of this stuff, then you see person after person just march through these stages and how long they last and exactly what they look like and how strong they are. Okay, those vary by the person, but the order is freakishly predictable. Wow. Okay, so, so, so yeah. we all operate probably on the same kind of framework model of the, the human mind, which is it's very weird to think about it like that. Yeah, there just seems to be something about attentional development that when you start developing your concentrative faculties, your, your mind stabilization and, and insight faculties, that these are the sort of bands you go through as an, of development. And um, so, yeah, the, the stages of insight, you can look them up or we can talk about them or not, uh, but they are just person after person. I've, you know, I've been on a whole lot of retreats and got to be in a lot of small group meetings and, and listen to, you know, lots of people tell me their stories and um, gotten to help them and read thousands of reports online. And again and again and again, I'm struck by how predictable this is. It's like embryology. Wow. In embryology, you know, you go from a you know a little clump of you know a, a single cell thing to a four cells to you know a bunch of you know and then like all these stages of embryology. Same thing with meditative development. It's like wow, look at that. Here they all go marching along. And yeah, this is what I love about. I mean, the 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 three meditation guys that I follow, they, they, you're all quite scientifically minded in in this sense, which is yourself, Gary Weber, and Shinzen Young, who wrote a book called The Science of Enlightenment, so <laughs> aptly named. And you got to check out Chula Dasa or John Yates and the Mind Illuminated. Big thumbs up. Illumin- I'm going to write that down. I'll check it out. Oh, yeah. Um, TMI, as is usually called. Great. Yeah, I'll have a look. So it, it's the fact that something which it seems so um, vacuous and, and hard to pin down can be engineered and is so predictable in, and, and the stages and everything is all so uh, laid out as a model. But it's very it's very hard because we can't measure it with anything other than our subjective consciousness. It's a weird concept to grasp. Well, they're starting to be able to measure some of this stuff. So I got to I was honored to be able to play in um, an fMRI and with some EEG stuff nice. uh, with Willoughby Britton and Judd Brewer, um, doctors in New England who study uh, meditation phenomenology and physiology. And actually, they're starting to be able to measure some of the aspects of meditative uh, things, particularly looking at the uh, PCC and, you know, whether or not it's activated or deactivated and what attention's doing. They're starting to look at some of these things. So they don't um, have all the switches and centers yet, but they're, they're starting to, pe- uh, you know, pick this apart and, and get some data to show 
that you can train to have good regulation of attention and there are centers in the brain whose activity reflects that and reflects it quite well. So they're, they're, start, they're getting there. That's cool. We're getting there with the imaging. And on that note as well, um, I got a Muse headset a couple of years ago, which yeah. um, for anyone who doesn't know, it's, um, it's a band that you wear, it's a portable EEG, essentially you wear around your head and it detects your level of concentration. And it's really clever in the way that it tests your equanimity because when you're in a concentrated focused state for a long enough time, birds start tweeting and the tendency is to be like yes get it and then you're like oh bollocks i've lost my concentration again and then if you lose concentration it plays the sound of like a a, a stormy beach or uh, rustling wind and that kind of thing and so the goal is to settle the mind and the, the sound reflects the sense of calmness i'd love to know your thoughts on this because i'm pretty divided on this to be honest um so really complicated i've played on a muse uh, actually with Judd Brewer. So when I was up playing on the EEG, it was interesting. He had a muse um, and I got to play on that after spending all day on his EEG rig. So his EEG rig is an $80,000 research grade, you know, 132 leads on your head, takes a while to get wired up, big fancy toy. And it was doing this really complicated algorithm to look in the middle of your brain to, you know, check out the degree to which something called the PCC was activated or deactivated, sort of replicating um, some stuff that was done in the fMRI uh, which is a million-dollar toy. And then we got it down to Amuse, which is like a few hundred-dollar toy. And there's the also um, the Emotive, which I have not gotten to play on and really want to, which I think is somewhere in the high, mid-high hundreds-dollar uh, toy and probably 600 pounds or something. And um, But the Muse was fun, actually, and I, it did correlate pretty well with um, tranquility and calm and stability of attention so it was pretty good that was my like, experience I'd, as well yeah. i'd give it a b minus okay. what's interesting is not all and so there are lots of different styles though of meditation and so you have to have a sense of what style you're looking for and what the thing is measuring because there are lots of different ways to measure the brain in terms of you know gamma bands or you know theta stuff or whatever whatever you're looking at there's there's all these and there's a whole that that's a huge, whole huge discussion um, but um, so it is nice to, to have something that measure it measures when your mind is settling down and calming down which the immune seem to do all right not perfect but it was okay yeah, you know and um, and it was fun to play on it was really interesting to see how it correlated but whatever you measure you're measuring for a very specific mental thing. And there are a lot of, lots of things you can do with your mind that might be very, very valid in some meditative context that are not necessarily that thing you happen to be measuring with one very specific toy. So for me, it didn't correlate well with Vipassana, with the open right. floodlight approach meditation. Yeah. It worked very well for focused nostril breathing, for example. Yeah. So again, so there's lots of different types of meditation. There's meditation where you're specifically calming down or settling, or focusing in on your nose, or the breath of your abdomen, or on a mantra, or a visualization, or on loving kindness, or just open space, or, you know, even down in the earth, depending, you know, there's, there's all these, and there's way more than that. That's just a short list of some of the common ones. A candle flame, one of my favorites. Um, but then insight practice might be very, not something other than calm where it's very like fine-grained analytic where you're seeing lots of little blips of you, thought you described it as um, playing a competitive <clears throat> sport absolutely so you might it, so that might be extremely energetic meditation not particularly calm at all but a very um fast mind 
that is really going for high-resolution capture of all the little sensations that make up your experience, um, either in one focus place or a whole lot of places, that can involve a tremendous amount of energy, a tremendous amount of effort, sometimes, um, particularly in the early stages, and that's an important thing. And so uh, you just have to recognize that there's lots of different types of meditation and different devices measure different aspects of them and may correlate well with some types of meditation, really not with others. So, Right, yeah. interesting. And so on the, the, the other concern that I had with Amuse headset, I, mean, I use it very occasionally, but my worry is that because you're externalizing the ability to subjectively um, assess and police your own internal experience, that it's maybe somewhat of a crutch. And it's like training mm-hmm. with a weightlifting belt or training with straps, where once you've got the hang of it, then maybe it's time to actually um, start to develop the strength that doesn't require the crutch or in, in any sense like that. Yeah, or balance. Like, it, like when I think about balance, like you could have someone like they're balancing you or if you're like walking on a balance beam, you might have a bar initially to help balance you or something. But eventually, if you're going to be on a balance beam, you need to balance without anything. And that metacognitive ability, I totally agree with you. So I, I like things that use as much of your wiring as you can and develop the wiring in-house um, so that you've got the metacognitive skill to, to know when you're on track, when you're off track, what the flavor of your experience is, whether or not you're going towards it or, you know, towards or away from the qualities that you're wanting to cultivate. And so, yeah, the more metacognitive hardware you can build in on this side, the better. But sometimes pointing out to people what those directions are so they even have a sense of it is really important, right? So, um, some people have a hard time even getting what it is they're looking for in certain styles of meditation and having something that points them towards that and gives them some biofeedback can be really helpful. And so that's actually why I like candle flame meditation because the candle's not really doing anything, but the images that you're concentrating on do do different things as your concentration gets better or worse, right? The, the images get clearer or less clear or do various things that are predictable based on the strength of your concentration. And so, actually, that's why I like what are called casino practices, which are using external objects as supports for concentration and then using those to generate the internal objects that you then tune into, uh, because those kinds of practices sort of get the best of both worlds, and they're free or cheap. I see. <laughs> you know? so. so, in general, using these external um, devices are kind of used as a way to point out the, the technique and then for you to, to pull back to your own internal wiring. What are your thoughts on psychedelics? Because I've, I mean, like the, the um, example that I've heard is that we're walking along a map, the psychedelic straps you to the front of a rocket, shoots you up in the air, you get a high level view of the entire map. But yep. then at the end of the experience, once the drug has left, you, left your system, you're back where you were on the map previously, but you've had a flash of, the previous, of what the map looks like. Yeah, okay, so this is really controversial stuff, right? So I'm going to give you my take on it. Realize this is one person's take on it. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people that have had different experiences, different relationships to these things. There's a guy who claims Um, to have become fully enlightened from 5-MeO-DMT. I don't know if you've seen him, Martin Ball. um, I I don't know that one. Um, I know some other people. I've watched some other videos talking about that. So, um, So the thing with psychedelics is... First, the notion that you will get this really high-level view of the entire map, I'm not sure that's true. I think people get what might be considered a high-level view with maybe some distortion and some exaggeration, 
maybe plus some things that they might not have seen otherwise. There's, there's no question that these can open people up to experiences that they've never had before. There's no doubt about that. There's no doubt that they can show people things that are way higher than what they're generally capable of at their baseline. That is definitely true. It is also true that um, not everybody integrates these things well. Not everybody, when you say you come back right down to where you were, I'm not quite sure that's true. So I know people who have come back to where they were and people who didn't. And when they came back to somewhere else, some of those places they came back to were good and some not so much, yeah. right? So like the, the thing is I talk about the dark sides of meditation and what can happen when things go wrong, which even with the stuff that I do, which is um, generally substance-free, like intensive meditation training, you can hurt yourself. Just like with intensive weight training or intensive running or intensive whatever it is, you can hurt yourself, right? Or gymnastics, you, any of that kind of stuff. You, the, you never know when something's going to break, snap, and that can happen with your brain as well. So um, I'm not singling out theogens or um, for special treatment in this regard, but it is true that they can catapult people way beyond where they might have been before. And when their mind sort of starts coming out, that doesn't always mean all the pieces come back together the same way. Um, uh, that doesn't always mean, um, let's see here, hold on a second. Uh, had a call coming in, sorry about that. So it doesn't always mean that um, this is going to go well. It doesn't always mean um, that uh, they're going to be able to reintegrate well. It doesn't always mean that they're even going to be able to function well at all. And so um, the problem is, is that I know some people who years later, they're just like, I I'm still not right. Uh, you know, and they might have even done one single dose of not even that powerful sometimes. And then I know other people have done hundreds of hits of hallucinogens, and they just had fun experiences, but they don't seem to be spiritually developed. They don't think of themselves as spiritually developed. It was just fun, interesting stuff, and they saw some interesting things. And then they came back, and they were normal, right? And so I've seen this huge range with the, the entheogens, and you don't know what you're going to get. Now, there are people who are saying, no, toad is special, or, you know, 5-MeO-DMT, or, you know, you know, um, the bufo, whatever, or you know, some of these things. They think, no, this is really doing something unusual. I, I know some people um, who have said that. I have some close friends who have even said some of those things, and yet I don't see at their baseline that it gave them as much as what I see in the baseline, just level of everyday function of people who have done the many, many hours of organic development that built the wiring. Um, over time that is now well integrated into their system. So uh, that sort of a... You know, that, that, that makes sense. And, it, and I think the analogy that comes to mind is um, using, doing a steroid cycle when bodybuilding or powerlifting and suddenly the muscle can grow faster than the connective tissue may be able to handle yeah. and you end up with a pec tear or something. It's like, yeah. it, you might be fine, but also it could be a very destabilizing experience at the same time. So, um, yeah. you know, using any kind of performance enhancer for especially, and I think it's important that you mention this, that meditation, just because it's sitting on a cushion, doesn't mean that it's risk-free. <laughs> and uh, right. and actually, you talk about some pretty haunting experiences in your book that um, show that it's like it's not to be played with. Yeah, so curiously enough, there is something we call the point of no return of the arising and passing away. When you said you had days where, like, it was all your sexual thoughts. This is this is stuff where people get into like kundalini stuff, vibrations, energy, bright lights, massive spiritual openings, conversion experiences. You know, um, this the arising and passing away is a huge topic. It can look like a whole lot of stuff, but after that, people are not the same. So if you've crossed the A and P, 
you are now different. Um, you have seen things that people who haven't crossed it haven't seen. It's sort of like entering spiritual adolescence, right? And so now there's all this additional stuff that starts coming up. And a lot of the stages that can come up after that for some people can be pretty challenging. And so that's all opportunities to integrate or things that can totally derail your life. <laughs> and um, so if you go on sites like the Dharma Overground, Dharma, you know, dharmaoverground.org, you will find endless reports of people who have crossed into this some just normal spontaneously. They weren't even meditating and they crossed this into this stuff or just meditating in small doses or some people on you know, intense retreats or Goanka retreats, very common place to have this happen. And then they enter what we would call the Dukanyanas Dukanyana, or knowledges of suffering, um, dark night stages, whatever you want to call them. I tend to call them dark night stages. And in these stages, a lot of stuff can come bubbling up, a lot of fear and anger and misery and doubt and dissatisfaction with life and relationships and jobs and careers. It can be very, very challenging for um, people and can cause a lot of trouble. It's a whole lot easier to handle if you know that that's expected, if you have good frameworks to handle these things, if you have good trainings and techniques to handle these things, just like if you've got a good physical therapist and you've got a good trainer and you've got you know, appropriate support, you can you know, you know, do your exercises in the proper way and all that stuff. That makes a big difference, right? You're likely to have much better outcomes with physical training, same thing with mental training. Um, it really helps to have some of that and to, to know how to do this properly and to know what to do if you start to get into trouble. Um, that, all of that makes a big difference and makes it a lot more workable. And once I found all of that, my life was a whole lot better. Not that there weren't some challenges, but it's like, well, okay. Once I can found that, the, that it will be a rocky The maps and technology. Yeah, the maps and technology that normalized the strange stuff I was going through that thousands of other people have gone through. Hello. Johnny here. Just a short interruption to this episode. I know what you're thinking. This show was brought to you by none of that. Trust me. We have something completely free, something to give you today. So we're aware that you guys who've been listening to our podcast, you've heard before us talk about the show notes and other places to go to download things from propanefitness.com. But we want to give those of you who listen to our podcast something completely different, something completely unique that we don't provide anywhere else. So we want to give you something that is actually a membership area or a membership portal where we have loads of free goodies, some downloads, some things to watch, some trainings, and some free presentations that we want to give you all bundled together completely free. All you have to do is go to propanefitness.com forward slash gift. There's no email opt-in. There's no enter your email and receive this. It's completely obligation free. You just enter your email, enter your username rather, and your password, and then you'll be sent login details. So completely free. In there, we have some training on the 3i formula. That's the framework that we use with all of our coaching students and loads of other free goodies. So that's propanefitness.com forward slash gift. Head over there now pick up your free training and we hope you enjoy. Hope you enjoy the rest of this episode and we'll speak soon. So Daniel, can you reconcile this with the increase in popularity and, and medicalization in some cases of mindfulness or you call it muck mindfulness? Yeah. Um, do you think that this is in the way that it's approached? Do you think that people are at risk of experiencing these side effects? They are. I mean, you're at risk of experiencing them just from having been born. There are people who cross into this territory spontaneously or on almost incredible, you know, almost no doses of meditation or through lots of other experiences. I know people have crossed into this during childbirth. Theogens is a really common way to cross the arising and passing away. Um, I know people who have had it during yoga uh, classes because they were so in tune to their body. And I know people who have had this happen during long marches and military training. I know people who have 
had this happen during um, uh, is an example I give a lot on these things is someone who is just taking a, a, a workshop to control their um, expelling of air while they were speaking and delivering lines as an actor. And she walked on stage at the next performance and crossed the arising and passing way. That was enough. <laughs> that was enough training and mindfulness to, you know, and um, so wow. uh, and to and so you never know when this is going to happen. I know people have crossed into this stuff as young kids, right? They're just they're just kids. And so um, and other people can meditate for twenty years and have never get into this stuff. I don't not quite sure why that is. It's it's an interesting so the, thing. This, but this the, the thing is, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So yeah, just um, so. Uh, she was learning how to deliver lines in a way that, you know, reached to the back of the room without running out of breath. So the sort of, you know, actors can learn to um, control how much uh, of their breath they uh, give out with each word and yet still maintain a relatively high volume. And mm. so that's uh, what this workshop was about. So and she's that done was some enough. accidental pranayama. Yeah, um, absolutely. And poof, that was enough. Right, so because so, I've seen some stuff about like the the vagus nerve modulation from slowing the breath, and do you think mm-hmm. that doing that, that well, I mean, I, I suppose self evidently it, it has some um, predictable effect on on the brain and our ability to manipulate our thoughts purely through our breath. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, changing your breath definitely changes your energy, changes things about how calm you are, changes uh, sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system stuff. Um, sure, changes cortisol levels and blood pressure and heart rate and and probably other epigenetic markers we don't know much about. We're starting to learn actually, so um, getting there, uh, stress markers and things. And so yeah, um, so learning to just focus on your breath to calm down, great skills to learn. Um, but you never know when you might suddenly get into interesting territory. I'm really happy I got into interesting territory because it led to some really cool stuff. Out past the dark stuff is the amazing stuff. So. Um, and the amazing stuff is really amazing. And so, um, it's, a, you know, going, entering insight stages, I consider a cool thing, but it can be like adolescence. Again, adolescence is challenging, but it's how we become adults, well, right? We have to I learn mean, a lot and we're thrown into situations we're not used to that can be sort of initially, you know, make us anxious or whatever, as we get used to, a, you know, a mind and body that work a little differently. So, so it's a Same cool thing, thing for meditation. you, but in the sense that you were willing to <clears throat> open Pandora's box and continue to to process the stuff. Whereas um, it sounds like what you were saying is that so it's, let's say the standard mindfulness based stress reduction approach that um, they might do is kind of public services or whatever. Maybe opening that box in people who are not ready or willing to yes. start unloading all of that stuff. And once you've begun the process. I guess the risk there is that you can't put the lid back on again. Right. And the problem is what they did is they took, so with a lot of the mindfulness stuff, they took the very beginner stuff and then they assumed that nobody was really going to become an advanced person beyond that. And they just cut all that out or ignored it or pretend it couldn't happen or said, oh, it's very rare, which is just not true. I've got thousands and thousands and thousands of reports. Like people send me emails all the time. Oh my God, this thing happened to me. Yeah, it's the same thing that's happened to all these other people. And so this has somehow been almost entirely excluded from the medical literature while they're teaching techniques that can cause this stuff is really bizarre. And so it's not that I wouldn't say don't do these things. I would say do them, but with appropriate technology that's been time tested for like 2,500 years or more, right? So if you look in the old books, you can find descriptions of this stuff. And it happens just like that today. And so 
I think that you should be teaching people how to regulate attention and how to notice thoughts as thoughts and how to notice emotions as emotions and how to calm down and how to stabilize attention. I think you should be teaching all those things. But I also think you should have a psychiatric and psychological and medical and counselor um, uh, training that says when you teach people these techniques or sometimes even just from daily life, they can sometimes get into this territory. This is where the ter- what the territory looks like. This is how to identify it. This is how to do something useful with it. This is how to manage its difficulties. And that technology has already been written down, time-tested. This is stuff that's old and that, you know, me in the, in the meditation circles I run in all the time. We use this stuff all the time. It's just part of our standard working lexicon of terms and techniques uh, that we find helpful. And I think the rest of the medical and psych- psychological community and social work community just needs to adopt that and um, say, okay, that these these people are right, and <laughs> we are. I think that's, that's quite reasonable. So, I mean, like, yeah, everything is going to have side effects. Yeah, sitting yeah. down is going to have side effects. Walking is going, you know. So, yeah, I think as long as people know what they're getting into when they do anything, or just recognizing mm-hmm. that there is nothing that is a hundred percent safe and pain free. Yeah, um, yeah, fair enough. So, Daniel, um, you have achieved. That something that is is quite rare in the meditation circles, and as we've discussed, it talks about uh, it, it requires a massive amount of total volume, total total time under tension. I suppose it's the equivalent of um, a three hundred kilo squat in powerlifting. Like there are a few people that get there. Many people have put in the total volume. Some just d- despite that didn't reach the didn't reach that point. Um, but you've done this alongside, despite the the rockiness. Um, a medical career how do you because this is where I feel like um I was like well that's my excuse and there's no um there's no scope for me taking this practice any any more seriously than a kind of peripheral thing because I've got this busy job and so on how did you manage to manage your time and deal with those excuses excuses and still manage to keep your progress going on on the different fronts um, so it is true that medical training um, is incredibly challenging, right? So we, we, there's, there's no doubt about that. Residency was hard. Medical school was hard. took a lot of time. But there are always sensations occurring that you can be paying attention to. So however, I mean, I don't mean to say it's all the same as being on retreat or whatever. It's not, right? But, but there's, while you're walking down the hall, there's your feet. While you're, while you're sitting there in class, there's your breath. There's sights on the, on the chalkboard. There's there's time, like when we're commuting, when we're, um, you know, going to sleep, when we're waking up, when we're eating our food, you can choose to be mindful or not. You can choose to be paying attention or not. You can choose to be kind to yourself or not. You can choose to notice thoughts as thoughts or not. And so, or you can choose to notice your feelings in your body or not. You can, and so the more you do that, the better this stuff is going to get, you're going to get. And I, I wanted to do both. So I wanted to be a doctor and I wanted to be a meditation person. And so I just basically just, that's what I wanted to do. That was my passion. And so, um, and I felt like I had to finish this thing up. So there was also something driving me. Like I had this sense of drivenness, like I had to get to something that was calling to me. Um, and I mean, finish up just one very, very specific limited aspect of spiritual training. I don't mean to finish everything. I haven't. Um, but, uh, and so, um, I really gave that a lot of attention, and I was meticulous about time management. Um, I was meticulous about using vacation time for retreats. I was meticulous about study. I was meticulous about daily mindfulness. And then, like in the middle of the night, if I woke up and couldn't sleep, I would just get up and sit. Right. So I, you know, 
um, was I was as I was laying down to go to sleep, I would just be like, "They're meditating. There is my breath. There is sensations. There is qualities of mind. There is some bliss. Okay, there is some pain. There is some whatever. I'm going to notice those things." Um, waking up in the morning, sitting on the toilet, brushing my teeth. Like, if you become obsessive about this, wow. which is, you know, is the way you become an expert in something, either as you're born with a freakish amount of natural talent, which I was not, or you obsess about it, right? That's how people become great at things. If you want to be a great athlete, you're going to have to obsess about it. You want to be Olympic level athlete, you're going to have to obsess about it. And I wanted to obsess about mind training. That makes so sense. That's what you I did. Absolutely pounded it then. And there's yeah. so, so many so, parallels with, I mean, again, Gary Weber um, talks about how he woke up at 4 a.m. before going to work and, you know, before seeing his family or anything and would just do several hours of deep yeah. practice before then. So it does seem like you increase the probability of this happening with the more volume that you do. Yeah. Very interesting. So as far as um, someone who is there such thing as a minimum effective dose for meditation practice? And do you think if you go below that, that you're wasting your time? Um, so it really depends on what you mean effective, right? So there are studies coming out now that even 10 minutes a day might make some difference in cortisol and stress reduction, right? And, and blood pressure, heart rate. So some maybe measurable effects on doses that I would consider pretty small, but still way better than zero. And just learning, if you spend 10 minutes a day simply training yourself to regulate your attention and to notice your emotions and, th as emotions and thoughts and thoughts and keep your mind on an object, that's way more time than most people spend doing it. And that will add up. If I, like, when I play guitar, if I just do 10 minutes at scales a day, I maintain a baseline level of calluses and finger strength and some coordination and stuff that it may be not like I'm making a whole lot of progress, but I, I keep my fingers, you know, there's some, that is a value. And so by minimum effective dose, you have to sort of define what you mean by effective. Are you going to become, am I going to become, you know, a virtuoso guitar player in 10 minutes of scale a day? No, <laughs> right? That hasn't happened. Um, but and are you going to become a virtuoso meditation, you know, person in 10 minutes a day? Only if you happen to be one of the rarest of the rare superstars, which exist. I wasn't one of them, right? So I, I know a few people like that. There are a few people who on really low doses, they exist. They're just rare. So, um, it depends on what you mean effective. And so you have to kind of define your goals for yourself. Like if you were doing powerlifting, you know, you're going to have to do a lot of powerlifting if you want to be a, a serious competitive powerlifter, unless you're just gifted with an outrageous amount of natural strength. Well, yeah, and so, so, but, but if you, like, if you're, if you want to jog, you know, two miles a day and do that every day, that's going to make you stronger, right? That's, it's going to help and that you're going to be way more of a runner and way more fit than most people. It will. And so, so it depends on what your goals are. Do you so, see what so, I mean? So, yeah, I guess it's important to define that. But there's certainly, I mean, there's a minimum effective dose of like five minutes of bench pressing once a week is going to do something. But yeah. really the fact that you, I mean, by that point, you've already got your clothes on, gone to the gym, done all. So actually there's going to be increasing marginal returns to training twice or three times a week up until oh, the yeah. point where there's maybe a sweet spot where beyond that you get diminishing marginal returns, but um, it would be interesting to see what your thoughts are on what, what that sweet spot, where that sweet spot lies. And I realize it, it still depends on your goal and so on, but from 10 minutes a day, let's say you upped it to 30 minutes a day, is that going to make a disproportionate increase in the results that you're going to get? I think so, yes. Um, so 30 minutes of sitting right, that's getting into a long enough that you're going to get to learn a lot about the, the stages you go through as you sit, like what it looks like in the first minute 
what it looks like in the next five minutes as you start to, you know, either wander or build up what it looks like by the end of that, right? I mean, 10, 10 minutes even itself has, it's going to have its own arc of, of how things go. But by 30 minutes, you're really getting somewhere up to an hour. If you do an hour sitting a day, you're going to learn some stuff, particularly if you do it well. And this is the other thing. So plenty of people sit and what they did during that sit, yes, you know, <laughs> it's just like there are people who work out and they're, you know, they may be taking a one pound weight and just kind of, you know, whatever. So and then there are people who are really, and, yeah. people who are really busting it, you know, <laughs> like and the people who are really busted, you know, really pushing it, you know, to machine, to machine, to machine, or they, they really sprinted for that, you know, whatever they did, they were really pushing themselves. They're really doing their technique well. They were really training well. Those people are going to get a whole lot more out of it. So even 10 minutes of really good sitting, depending on what your technique is, there's different techniques and I would give different criteria depending on what your te technique is. Um, but if you make really good use of that 10 minutes or 30 minutes or hour, it's going to be way better than um, just sitting there vague, spaced out meditation or not really doing whatever the technique is. But being like, oh, well, I clocked up the hours. So Right. Yeah. yeah. So just just sitting there like an idiot is not going to get you <laughs> what sitting there like someone who wants to become a meditation master is going to get you. So Does how that do make you sense? ensure quality control with that? Yeah, have really high standards. Right. So, and know what those standards look like. So if you have reproducible standards and things you can actually go, okay, this is what good meditation looks like, right? And so there are different, again, there are different techniques in different traditions, so I've got to be a little careful here because it's not like they all have the same standards or quality metrics. But, you know, when you're bench pressing, you can see, oh, two months ago I could, you know, bench press this and now I can bench press this, right? You can see a difference. And, or you can say, you know, if I did 100 reps of 50 pounds on whatever machine, you, you know, you know that, you can feel it. There are things kind of like that for meditation. They're just not quite as physically obvious. And so, like, if you can see five sensations per second every second for 10 minutes, notice five sensations arise and vanish That's no every joke. second for 10 minutes. You did something, right? That, okay, there you go. Like, that I would go, that was a good 10 minutes, right? If you can do that, you got something pretty cool. So, and if, and, and so, you know, if you can stay with 100 breaths in a row and notice the beginning and ending of 100 breaths in a row, you got something. That's pretty cool. Like, not a lot of people can do that. Most people, two or three, and they're gone. You got yeah. 100, right? And so, I don't mean, like, people, there's a whole school of thought that just hates this kind of thing about meditation. They do not like people applying metrics to it or numbers or frequencies or how many beats per second or different levels of depth of, you know, whatever. But uh, those of us who train that way, tend to get farther i don't mean that's to, see, you know like, that, that's so sorry well because we anyway we're, we're very big on tracking and data for fitness purposes but yeah um as you said most people are very anti-tracking for meditation because they say you know it's counterproductive as soon as you get become attached to the outcome then you whatever but and, and i your rebuttal in the book if i remember correctly is well as long as you're doing the method and the the trying to check your progress doesn't become part of the method then yeah there's no conflict right if you could say okay that was a breath and this is another breath and this is another breath this is breath number four this is breath number five this is breath number six and you get to a hundred you did something good that's concentration right do a thousand see if you can do a thousand breaths in a row okay now you got something that's so real like, that's same, real same principle yeah you could apply the same kind of skills goal you can notice and... 10 sensations arise every second you're rocking it you can do that for 100 seconds in a row, 
Woof. Go ahead. So, you know, so have you have you seen these yeah. milestones that um, I mean I've seen a couple of people have different ones where they say after fifty hours of meditation you experience well my experience was this this and this after five hundred it was this uh, do do you think there is any validity to that? Um, so again, it depends on what you're doing on the cushion, right? So people do progress at different rates. Not everybody moves at exactly the same speed. But there is a predictable unfolding to how things go, particularly within specific traditions and techniques. So if you took 10 people who were all kind of different, but you gave them the same technique and gave them careful instruction and really monitored what they were doing with their own mind after you gave them that instruction, because that's usually where things go wrong. They wanted to meditate. You told them how to meditate. They sit down and then God knows what they did. But like, if you're not paying, okay, wait, what did you do with that instruction? Like, what are you doing with that time? Uh, well, it's, it, okay. It and then you got to really, like, right. I, I think it explains like a hundred percent of the, I, I know people say, oh, genetics and everything, but I think genetics really determine yeah. the maximum muscle yeah. capacity that someone can have. But most people don't even approach that limit. And so yeah. almost a hundred percent of the difference between two of our clients results with the program is mm-hmm. their adherence to the program, the gap between yeah. the program and their compliance with it. So, yeah. Sure. So if you gave 10 people the same instructions and you carefully monitored to check that they were doing the right thing and they had appropriate support, they're going to, you know, the difference between 50 and 100 and 500 hours of meditation, there will be some differences, but you're going to notice a lot of similarities, particularly in the, in the general arc of people's progress. Maybe not the same timing exactly, but there will be real parallels. Um, particularly if you're doing some of the traditions that do emphasize things that are measurable, like how many breaths can you notice in a row? You know, how, um, you know, can, and, you know, how many, you know, pulses of sensations can you notice arise and vanish per second? Those would be two easy ones. Um, but there are others, right? So. It's so refreshing to hear that because I think most people even shy away from meditation because it's like, well, how do I even know if I'm getting anywhere? I'm not just wasting my time sat on a, sat on my cushion for, you know, it, is this just some and, and i i certainly thought for a, for a while i was like is this just one big prank that the world is playing to tell you to <laughs> sit in, and then everyone's like that guy's just sat like listen to you know it's like so yeah having some metric that you can actually measure yourself and there's no second guessing about it is fantastic sure so i mean the other thing is you want to sort of know what it is you're trying to develop so like there's all these different frameworks and techniques so like i like um, something called the seven factors of awakening, right? So the seven factors of awakening would be mindfulness, investigation, energy, rapture, um, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. Each of those actually has standards, right? So you can be, you know, you can know what mindfulness is. Mindfulness is the ability to know what's actually happening in your experience. Can you notice a thought being a thought when it arises? Can you notice a bodily sensation as a bodily sensation when it arises? That's a basic question. If you can't do that, you know you're doing something wrong. You don't have basic mindfulness yet. And so if you can go, oh, wait, there was a thought and there was another one. And you can do that consistently. Be mindful. There's another sensation. There's another thought. There's another sensation. There's another thought. So that's mindfulness, right? And so you can know, am I being mindful, right? And if you're noticing there's thoughts and there's physical sensations and there's visual sensations and those sounds, and you can do that one after the other after the other, that's mindfulness. Investigation. Are you noticing these things coming and going really rapidly? Are you really looking at their true nature? which is to arise and vanish on their own really quickly. So we have so much information coming in per second. Investigation really steps you up to the level of like, what percentage of the information coming in did you actually comprehend clearly? And you can start to go, well, let me guess, maybe 5%, 10%, I don't know. Like, how many sensations in a second did I notice arise and vanish clearly from their very beginning to the very ending? 
So investigation actually has some clear criteria of whether or not you're actually getting what investigation is. So energy, like, are you falling asleep? Can you bring your attention you know, back to things? Do you have enough energy to even be mindful or to actually practice or to stay sitting upright or to keep yourself from falling asleep? If you don't have enough energy, like, it usually becomes pretty obvious. And so by looking at like, some of the things you're supposed to develop as like, core skill sets that form the foundation of the, the later stages of meditation, you can go, okay, wait, am I, am I getting this? And to what degree am I getting this? And then you can even develop a community and say, hey, my other meditative friends, like, what do you think? What's, what's good mindfulness? Like, what's, what are reasonable criteria? And if you hang out with people who know how to develop this stuff with reasonable criteria, you can go, okay, well, they could do this, and you can listen to them describe the practice. I can't do that yet, but I can see how I might try to do that. And then you try to do that, and you go, you get there, and you're like, oh, now I can do this thing, right? So That's just cool. like if you, yeah, so, um, so having regular conversations with people about like, were you, were you able to be mindful of thoughts and sensations arising and vanishing? Were you able to investigate clearly each one arise and vanish and notice what they were? Were you able to be sufficiently energetic? Were you and rapture is sort of like being enraptured by experience, but it's also like the sort of joy of like discovery of what's going on in your mind. It's this interesting word. It's got a number of connotations. Like, were you really like into it? Like, you can tell people who are into their workout, right? Mm. That they're there. You know, they are pumped. They are feeling it. You know, they've got that joy about their workout. Same thing with meditation. If you don't have that joy, it's probably not going to work that well. It's not like we all don't get tired and think, oh, I really need to sit, but I'm exhausted and I'm you know, stressed out or whatever. You know, that happens. It's not going to be a good session, like, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's not going to be that good a session. But if you, if you approach it with, oh, my golly, I get to sit. I get to do this thing. This is so cool. Like that joy or tranquility. Like these are some of the later factors. Like can you be tranquil without spacing out? Can you be calm and still be present? Like so tranquility, you know, and some of the later factors, tranquility and concentration – can you have steady, calm mind that's still bright, that's still enjoying what's going on in because, the process? Yeah, the tranquility that's still can be... really clear, right? Ooh, and ooh. so that's properly developed tranquility. And so to actually figure out how to strengthen and balance all of these factors, these are things you can learn to do. And so you go, oh, that's what I'm looking for. Okay, that's helpful. Nice. And so and, and hanging out with people who are also into that same kind of thing makes a huge difference. It's, it's much more fun to have a workout buddy or whatever. You know, so many parallels. And I, I like that actually when you when you break it down to the anatomy of meditation, there's so many possible metrics that you can track and that you can um, mm -hmm. improve on and, and then know for yourself whether something is progressing or not. And yep. whether, you, you know, it may just be simply that you're just going through the motions and not applying the effort or the tranquility, as you said, it, it's kind of it's also one of the hindrances, if, if I'm right, that if you if you're too tranquil and you're falling asleep, mm -hmm. then there's many people that hit that as a sticking point with meditation. They're like, well, every time I sit down to meditate, I fall asleep. And it's like, well, either there's mental resistance or you're just sleep deprived. Maybe go and have a proper sleep and then try and meditate in the morning rather than force yourself to when you're sleep deprived. So, or you may have not given your mind something really cool and interesting to do, right? So a lot of people are just yeah. like, I'm going to sit here and there's the breath and it's boring as heck and so what, right? And see, I get that, right? I've done so lots of that. Vipassana but is like, so much more exciting than breath meditation. Than, um, I, in fact, just on that note, um, I, was, yeah. I, I listened to your audio book and uh, I liked that the, the, the voice actor was calling concentration meditation Samantha. Um, I don't know if you've uh, <laughs> spotted that. Yeah, there's a lot of funny mis uh, 
yeah, misspoken words, mispronunciations in that one. The audiobook is is remarkably interesting. Good old Samantha. You know, yeah, so cool. But um, what can you do? Yeah. So, well, it, something you said in the book was it is these sensations right here that are soaked with truth, and mm-hmm. that is such a great statement because it's like, what is there not to be excited about when the actual sensations that are right here are the things which are soaked in truth, like then what what more motivation do you need to sit and um, wide-eyed focus on the things that are passing through awareness? Yeah, also to, to develop the resolution that we have. Our minds have amazing capacity for high-resolution capture of our experience, right? And we use this all the time when we do all kinds of things when we're driving, when we're doing artwork, when we're being creative in all kinds of ways, when we're reading. How many, you know, or even typing, like how many words can you read a second? How, when you're watching a movie, like in an action scene, you see all this cool stuff happen really fast. It's like, wow. And you took it all in. But our bodies and our minds and our emotions have that level of intricacy and richness. And if you start going, oh, wow, check this out. I mean, initially it can feel kind of dull. Like, oh, I'm just sitting there. There's not much going on. There's a ton going on. All these little blips of thought, all these little blips of emotions and feeling, all these little stories, all these little images of our body, all these little subtle things, all these sounds in the room, all these little intentions to do things, all the little memories and and expectations and all these little... It's really rich. And when you go, okay, I'm going to really get what is even happening in my experience. I'm going to understand myself. I'm going to understand this body. I'm going to understand this mind. And I'm going to use the amazing power of my brain to understand my brain. Um, That's an incredible thing to do. And you, you actually start realizing that's the game. And that when you do that, really cool and interesting things happen. Sometimes strange things happen. Okay, true. Um, sometimes challenging things happen. Okay, true. But when you, but that's like a fascinating thing to do. And I, that video game like spirit that I talk about in the book, where you're like, yeah, yeah, that really, like that, a first person shooter, clicked with yeah. me so much actually. Playing Space Invaders, and it was like, mm-hmm. ah, I get it now. And um, yeah, that any sensation, any any phenomenon coming through the awareness can be broken down into its subcomponents to the, so um shinzen young talks about any emotion or sorry an, any thought or emotion always has a corresponding physical sensation along with it and once you tune into that you realize that even the most asinine banal thoughts can have some physical correspondent and then you're like ah it's all physical sensation and then things are, things really open up yeah Very so cool. our our minds and bodies are fascinating things. There's a ton to learn. And, and it, initially, it can be sort of daunting. Like, you sit down, and maybe the first you know, number of times you do this is not that interesting. You think, oh, like, I'll never get there. I don't know how they do this. But it's like doing you know, chords on a guitar. The first time I ever did a G chord on a guitar, I felt like I had some sort of movement disorder. Like, <laughs> you know, I was like trying to get my fingers to get in that position seemed impossible. And now I play G chords, no problem. Like, so... And a thousand things were like that. The first time we ever drove a vehicle or the first first time we ever tried to read, it seemed really challenging. But then, you know, we learned to do these things. So, so and then it just becomes natural and automatic. Yeah, exactly. So the, there's a, on the metrics thing as well, there's a modality that I've been playing with for quite a few years and I'm, I'm a huge fan of it, which is the Sedona method, or it's, um, it's called a number of other things as well. It was, it was under Lester Levinson's lineage and it was like... Um, the the best metric it basically it says that all thoughts come from a feeling and all feelings are driven by one of the core three desires the one for control the one for approval or the one for safety 
and um, that's kind of like the tree of consciousness. And if you were able to, you can either get release thoughts individually, or you can attack it from the branches, which are the feelings, or you can uproot the core desires. And then there's this incredible spaciousness that comes from underneath. And the great thing about it is that, again, you can apply a metric to it, which is, and I've not seen the teachers do this, maybe they're kind of against measuring metrics, but it works for me, is you have a feeling or a desire, you rate it on a scale of one to 10 in terms of intensity, and you apply the method, and then whether it drops or increases, that's progress. And sometimes it will increase before it decreases, just because you may be uncovering more. But yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. Fun. Nice. That sounds like a really good time. Definitely. And it was, um, it, it's one of the methods that, that Gary Weber again used in, um, it's part of his, part of his practice. And I noticed that again, in your book, you talk about there being multiple paths to enlightenment or mo- multiple gates, I think, um, either the, the Vipassana gate, which is, I can't remember that what, what you just, what you labeled. So yeah. So the three doors, so the, uh, the three doors would be, um, impermanent suffering or no self, right? <laughs> People right. don't like talking about suffering, but there's actually this weird sort of bizarre tension in how we try to maintain a stable self in the face of an endlessly changing experience. And that's actually causes this weird sort of thing. So like, yeah, impermanence, you, like all of a sudden, if you get good at noticing everything arise and vanish, eventually you can even notice space arise and vanish and your, you and your whole body arise and vanish. So life is happening in this sort of weird mix of digital and analog where each moment is kind of arising and disappearing, you can actually get so good at noticing that that you notice your whole body and space and mind and everything and it arise and vanish really quickly. And then you can notice sort of what's between the frames, which is a funny thing to talk about something that you can't actually experience but somehow can, anyway, kind of get to anyway. Um, so, or you can feel this weird tension in the illusion of duality. So we have this notion that somehow some of these sensations occurring here must be us. Right? There must be one of these as us. It's the back of my head or it's the middle of my skull or it's you know, somewhere or this thought. Some of this, it's got to be me and it changes all the time, you know, but somehow it's got to be me. Well, eventually you can, you can feel that weird tension in that and sort of release that. And all of a sudden, like, like that whole sense gets sort of torn away and everything kind of vanishes and reappears and it does this great thing to the brain. Or you can go through what's called the no-self door, which is like, like you see all these images that you think are you like this sense of you this is who i am except you're looking at those except so they can't be you and then all of a sudden something in that paradox resolves and all of a sudden you're like oh wait a second if i'm looking at something it can't be me and everything i see i'm looking at so nothing can be me but when you actually really get that at the level of practice then you can um uh, chance on something really cool through seeing that really well and that just takes time for a lot of people and, and good circumstances and good training so it sounds like a, a, a very it, it's, it's very hard to articulate these concepts because i suppose words can't really touch the the experience and i think the best way i've heard it is that it's the eyeball turning back on itself to see itself yeah. and then suddenly it's like everything dissolves mm-hmm. into into one thing yeah um so daniel it's been amazing chatting to you i've got a couple of questions just to wrap up um for some Great. Kind of key takeaway points First of all, um, how has meditation impacted your medical practice now, now that you've kind of, you've used it, you've leveraged the time that you had um, to, to practice as much as possible while you're in hospital, presumably at uh, where it was safe to do so. Um, and something else that I saw you, you said in your, um, in your book was the statement of intent. 
both with sitting down to meditate and and having a, a clear statement to kind of galvanize the mind's intention to focus on something but also even with studying you're saying i will study for this hour because then i, I can become a better practitioner and kill fewer patients for example <laughs> yeah humor anyway <laughs> so yes uh so a medical practice well first of all i should say medical practice in many ways was really great spiritual training I should sort of, because that's sort of something I forgot to mention earlier, getting to help people is a good spiritual training. Getting to learn to speak professionally is good spiritual training. Learning to listen to people is good spiritual training. Learning to dedicate one's life to helping others is good spiritual training. Learning to witness suffering is good spiritual training. These things helped. And they, you know, um, I actually just actually retired from emergency medicine two months ago. Oh, I should congrats. mention Oh, thanks. Anyway, so uh, a little over two months ago, um, very exciting um, to have some time to do some other things. But during my 12 years or so, um, 12 and a half years of practice and three years of residency and all that, um, so meditation training helped a tremendous amount with just being able to be aware of what I was doing. So like, what do their heart sounds sound like? What do their lung sounds sound like? What am I actually hearing? What's happening in my body as I witness somebody else's challenging experiences and can I just have that be here while their experience is there and not get sucked into my own thoughts about my pain or suffering not that those aren't valid experiences but like to not get lost in one's own stuff so medical training can be very challenging it's easy to have a whole lot of complex emotions and um, it's in response to what we see what we do what we deal with right a lot of uh, illness and death a lot of pain, a lot of um, challenging psychiatric and psychological situations. Um, and if you have more awareness of feelings, just as feelings in your body, that helps tremendously. If you're like, oh, wow, I'm feeling this unease with this, or I'm feeling this grief about this, or I'm feeling um, fear about whatever's going on, or, you know, I'm feeling hungry, <laughs> maybe I just need to go eat, <laughs> like, <laughs> um, or I need to seriously pee, you know, mm. for, you know, working eight hours in a row or whatever it is, like just being able to be mindful of those feelings, I think made me a better practitioner because by being mindful of my own body, I was able to, um, as just sort of part of what's going on in the room, I was able to sim- simultaneously honor my own experience, monitor my own reactions and be able to uh, be more present to patients. So I think that helped a lot. Um, the, one of the biggest things that I think was really important was being able to navigate and change between mind states and recognize mind states. So like, for example, if you, um, this is an example I think I've given in a podcast or two before, but it's a, a really good one. Like if you're running a code, right? So someone's dying or has died and you're trying to get them back or they're nearly dead or somewhere in that gray zone. And during that is extremely, you're, you know, you're pumped with adrenaline, you're moving really fast, you're barking out orders for everyone to do compressions or give epinephrine or whatever it is, you're shock people or, you know, put in another line or fluids or whatever it is you're doing. Um, that's a really, really high intensity situation where adrenaline's just pouring through your body and you're in one mind state. And then maybe you have 10 seconds as you're walking down the hall to tell the family that their loved one has died or explain uh, what happened during the code. And you got you got ten seconds to bring it down, to appear calm. Like, oh my God! You you right? So- <laughs> yeah. Like and so uh, you know as you, as I, I'd spent a lot of tra- training um, learning to navigate mind states, learning to be mindful of mind states, learning to modulate energy, 
learning to modulate my speech patterns, learning to speak skillfully. Those are all important parts of my training. And so, um, and learning to be kind and to listen. And so, yeah, when you've got 10 minutes walking down the hall to come down off something that's about as energy charged as most people are ever going to experience, and then you just have to, you know, patiently and calmly say, I'm so sorry that your loved one has died. Um, wow, do you have any okay. questions? And then just hold the space, you know, so, still quiet so and give them the space to go through what they need to go through. That, uh, my meditative training really helped with stuff like that. Um, and then to be able to run out of that room and just like fly off and see the next patient and dive into the next situation. And so that sort of mental, um, flexibility, uh, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So just as we can learn to make our bodies flexible by stretching them and by paying attention to how far we can stretch them and what position they're in and all that same thing with our minds, you can learn to make your mind more flexible and more resilient and be more conscious of what position your mind is in. The flexible, same way you can do with your resilient body. Resilient and conscious, yeah. yeah, as a practitioner. And do, do you think that your patients recognize that in that increased presence? With yeah. Them? Do you, do you, did you get the oh, kind yeah. of feedback from them that, yeah. Yeah. That is fascinating. Um, so, Daniel, do you have any advice for beginners that maybe have dabbled with meditation or haven't, um, haven't got their footing in it uh, and anything that, any kind of, prescription or takeaway point that you would recommend for them yeah i would pick up somebody's stuff other than mine <laughs> like shinzen young's what is mindfulness great book or the mind illuminated by chuladasa or mindfulness in plain english fantastic book by bante gunaratana yeah. i would pick up one of those and start with that because um, while i cover a lot of basic stuff i you know i i sort of you know my thing just because the way my path was and my interest um, I cover more high, sort of middle to high end stuff, which is also important. It's interesting to see what that looks like because I think that can help inform earlier practice. But I would really um, pick up one of those other books or all of them and um, learn those things. I would make a commitment to daily practice of some kind, even if it's five minutes, even if it's three minutes. Make a commitment to daily practice. You can find three minutes somehow. There is a way, even if it's when you're sitting on the toilet with the kids, you know, like banging on the door. There is a way to be mindful um, and make a commitment to just trying to be present to what's going on in your life, in your body, as you walk around, particularly all the little periods that typically we're not very conscious about. Those are incredibly high yield. Those are like freebie gimmies <laughs> of meditation time. Like, you know, when you're just getting up out, out of bed in the morning and like putting your feet on the floor, there's the floor. There's my body moving in space. There's me putting clothes on. There's me brushing my teeth. Those are all gimme times. It's, it sounds like low end, but that's actually a great foundation because you're training core attention things to really be present and being present is, the, is really the key. So the more you train, the better you will get and just make those basic commitments to simple things. And yeah, pick up one of those. I would start with one of those three places um, and a cool, another cool book, A Path with Heart by Jack Kornfield. Um, good stuff. And then maybe if you need some more kindness or something like that, Loving Kindness, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness by Sharon Salzberg, um, also good. So, or something by Pema Chodron, if you're having a hard time. So uh, with some this. challenging yeah. stuff. Yeah, all good stuff. So I, I would start with one of those. There's a, there's a bunch of other good ones. I don't mean to say that, you know, but there's a lot of great stuff out there these days. That's one of the interesting things about meditation material. When I was coming up in this, it was hard to find good stuff. And now there's so much, I, like, I can't possibly keep up with it all. So those are things I would start with. You've completely destroyed any excuses as well by saying, you know, uh, well, I mean, you, you did it during your medical training, but also 
when you're waking up, brushing your teeth, sat on the toilet, like the, as you said, there's so many ripe for the plucking moments that you can do this with. So um, one one thing again, another excuse buster that uh, they say at the end of <clears throat> the end of ten day retreats, which is you should go home and meditate two hours a day because <laughs> you sleep an hour less and you're an hour more productive. And you're like, damn it, right? Well, there's my excuse out the window now. Like it's free time. But yet here I am, not meditating two hours a day. So, yeah, and you know I don't mean to be. We got to be careful with screen time, right? Because screen time's getting us all. Um, but be careful with screen time. Um, I'm really excited about Apple's new uh, screen oh. time minding things that they just are going to introduce with iOS 12. I think those are great things to take advantage Massively. of. But some people just practice better with an app. So if you need an app, get an app, right? I mean, so there's some good apps out there. There's some great people teaching on apps these days. Whatever it is, I'm not going to you know, mention specific ones, but you'll find them very rapidly. And um, yeah, just, just get a good app and just stick to it. And even if it's just short sessions, that's better than nothing, right? And so you'll get some good basic training, hopefully. And, and um, if it takes an app, okay, fine. You know, I'm, I'm up for modern technology when it doesn't screw up our lives. It's a necessary evil. But yeah, it's, uh, it, the, the screen time thing is achieving the opposite. I think it's fragmenting our attention and... Uh, it, I saw something today that it seems like there are f- functional changes in in the brain that we observe from repeated screen time. And kids at five or six years old now are less able to recognize and delineate facial expressions in other people, presumably because they're spending so much time not looking at other human faces. So it's pretty haunting stuff. And yeah, I'm glad Apple made that move in the right direction. So for people who are beginners start with, with uh, um, Pema Chandran, uh, Hanepala Garantana. I'll, I'll, I'll put some links in the description because these are probably a nightmare to spell. Um, and then if you're further along the line and you've listened to this and you're really resonating with what's going on, definitely, definitely check out Dan's book. Um, it's called Thanks. Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha. Honestly, it's just, there is not even a sniff of bullshit in it. It's so <laughs> clear and actionable and it does away with a lot of the um, the fluff and a lot of the kind of uh, I don't even know what I don't know what to call it the the story and the narrative that comes along with the stuff that isn't necessary a lot of the time. Um, he's brought out a new version of that called Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha Two, uh, which I think is <laughs> a um, it, it's a you revisited it, basically edited it to. Um, make it more streamlined. Is that right? No, God, I wish okay. I had. No, I, I didn't have anything like that much sense. Although I am actually working on a streamlined version of it, so I'm gonna. I've actually got a team now that's gonna help me summarize it because I unfortunately went in the opposite direction. It's now 320,000 words or so, <laughs> 600 big pages, single spaced. Oh, it's my, a total okay. hog of a book. Um, and so, um, uh, but uh, so first point, it's uh, it's gonna be available in paperback. I think this month. There's actually a hardbound edition for, for some strange reason. You just like spending lots of money and having really nice books. It looks nice and though, the hardbound one. I think it's going to be really cool. But I also give it away for free. So uh, shout out to my really quirky, amazing publisher, Eon Books, um, out of the UK, who uh, tolerates my fascination with putting this out there for free. Uh, not a lot of publishers are into that kind of thing, but they let me do that. So I'm really excited about that. You can, the first place you'll be able to find that is www.mctb.org, so Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha.org, or mctb.org, and you can read it for free, right? So I don't do this for the money, 
Um, I managed to lose money on uh, meditation stuff. Uh, so I'm very excited about that. And um, so, yeah, if you, and you can find the old version of the book is, is available in a number of places for free as well. It's a lot shorter. I don't think it's quite as good, but it's still really cool. So, and the second one is long, but you don't have to read the whole thing. And if you want to just get to the core bits, most of the really important stuff is in the first um, few parts. And then it sort of gets longer and more rambly as the thing goes. Um, so you, you've, you've heard it there, you know, he's doing it non-profit essentially, or even at a loss, um, which I think is a testament to the credibility that this is not just a profit driver. This is really key information that um, you can get the free version and then buy the full version, the lovely red bound no, paperback. The, 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 the full version is the same. The free version is exactly the same as the full version. Yes, yeah, so you can just buy um, a physical yeah. one just because it's nice. Yeah, so, or if for some reason, yeah, you, you like nice, really nice hardbound books, you can spend a bunch of money and get the hardbound book. Okay. There we go. Dan, how can people find out more about you? So you could go to www.integrateddaniel.info. Um, spelled just like you'd figure. Cool. All one we'll put word. a link in the show notes. And um, so that's my website. You can follow me on Twitter at Daniel M. Ingram, uh, all one word. Uh, and you can uh, go on the Dharma Overground. Uh, I hang out there some, and there's a lot of really cool practitioners there, so I really um, recommend cultivating a network of people, getting a range of perspectives on your practice, cultivating skillful skillful friends who are good at this stuff, and seeing what the range is like out there. And so you can find um, lots of other very talented, very accomplished, very interesting and cool practitioners, different takes on some stuff, some different personalities. Okay, we're all a little different. But there are really some very accomplished people there who have great meditation skills and chops who are willing to help people, and that's all free. So um, good things to check out. So check out all those resources. If you're interested in more, check out Daniel Ingram, all the links in the show notes. Daniel, it has been a blast talking to you. Great speaking with you as well, and I hope you all practice well and make no excuses. And I wish you the best of luck in your medical training and career. Goodness gracious, (laughs) what a thing to do, huh? Yeah, what a thing. It's, uh, I think we're, we're too deep in it now to, uh, to turn back. So, <laughs> Daniel, thank you. Speak soon. Hey, Johnny again. Hope you enjoyed that episode of the Propane Fitness Podcast. Just a short reminder, if you're listening to this, driving in your car, and you're thinking, man, I really wish I had a reference that they made in minute five or ten or whatever to that thing that they were talking about. Well... We've, we put together show notes for these podcasts every single week. We give you timestamps, we give you links to things we talk about, and we also give chances to grab free things, bonuses, etc. So head over to propanefitness.com and grab the show notes for this episode over there. Also, if you want to be notified of these podcasts when they come out, if you want free subscribe, subscriber-only benefits, stick your email address in and grab our free downloads, one of the many free downloads if you go to propanefitness.com and the homepage. There's a big red banner on the top of the website. Pick up that free ebook, that free download, and we'll send you emails whenever a new podcast is available. Just one short reminder as well. As you are a podcast listener, you have access to our exclusive free gift that is available nowhere else. And that is at propinfitness.com forward slash gift. Yeah.